Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, we focus on our rapidly changing climate, in particular the ongoing COP28 climate summit in Dubai, United Arab Emirates, which is coming to an end. Uh, These annual conferences serve as a formal meeting to negotiate and to agree to action on how to tackle climate change and halt global warming. Nearly 200 countries represented at this year's COP28. Uh, Later this hour, we'll hear from Iowans uh, attending the conference, who have attended the conference. It's been going on for a a number of days. Christian Elliott, we'll hear from him. He's a science journalist, also a Pulitzer Center fellow, originally from Bluegrass, Iowa, in the southeast part of the state. Interesting conversation I had with him last week. We'll hear that in a few moments. Also, the mayor of Dubuque, Brad Kavanaugh, will join us live, along with his uh, sustainable, director of sustainability for the city of Dubuque, Gina Bell. Uh, joining us uh, for most of the hour, uh, we have environmental engineer Jerry Schnoor is with us. He's a University of Iowa professor of civil and environmental engineering, a researcher here. We've had him on before. He's one we turn to for uh, his view on climate science. Jerry Schnoor, nice to see you in our studio today. Good to be here, Ben. Uh, join us with your questions, one 780 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Uh, Jerry, uh, let's address what's happening in Dubai or what has happened. Uh, Dubai is 10 hours ahead of uh, central time here in the U.S. Uh, so what's been happening over the last few hours is that uh, negotiations going into the night in Dubai, uh, suddenly, according to Bloomberg News, that I'm reading on my screen, more confidence that negotiators are close to bridging divisions on the future of fossil fuels. I want to play a little bit of uh, of John Kerry here. Uh, He's a special envoy, uh, climate envoy from the U.S., uh, certainly a major voice in this uh, summit. Now, uh, the, the little bit of context, countries gathered at this Dubai summit attempting to agree on a global plan of action to limit climate change fast enough to avert some disastrous flooding around the world, fatal heat, um, um, uh, and also irreversible changes to our world's ecosystems. Here is John Kerry uh, speaking hours after a draft deal that did not phase out fossil fuels was proposed. This is a human challenge, mankind challenge. It is, in fact, as existential as it has been described. And if it is existential... And all of our countries are threatened, and they are, and all life is threatened, and it is, then we need to pull ourselves together with every strength we have and every capacity we have in order to pursue every option there is to get there as fast as we can. Okay, Jerry Schnoor, give us some context here and the the chief controversy over the phasing out of fossil fuels. What is going on at this summit, and and what is the crux of the controversy here? Well, at a summit like this, everybody has to ask to agree. There has to be consensus. Almost 200 countries have to agree on the same verbiage, and that's the rub. That's the problem, because the oil countries, OPEC, and others, too, do not want the 
the agreement to say that we're going to phase out of fossil fuels. They envision a future, even in 2050, where uh, fossil fuels, oil in particular, is still needed as a feedstock and for various uses that's difficult to replace. Whereas 100 plus countries feel like the only way to assure that we stay within a reasonable warming of less than 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. The only way to do that and the quickest way is to phase out of fossil fuels and and phase in renewable energy at the same time. So it's really a difference in vision, I think, of how the countries see us achieving. They all want to achieve Mm -hmm. zero uh, carbon emissions in 2050. They all want that, but they have different visions about what it's going to look like. And that's the problem for the verbiage in the agreement. Is phasing out fossil fuels by 2050 realistic? Um, I guess you could ask that in many ways, politically realistic, realistic economically for the world. It's realistic in the sense that uh, if we have, if there is a need, there's going to be a need for liquid fuels, regardless. Probably aviation fuel, shipping fuels. But the question is, how do you make those fuels? For example, in Iowa, our vision would be we're going to make those fuels from crops, some kind of crop, and we're going to corn or switchgrass, corn switchgrass, uh, uh, woody matter, uh, and we're going to make the an aviation fuel which is going to be much needed, but it's going to have a a zero carbon content on a Mm -hmm. net basis, life cycle. It won't involve any carbon emissions. That would be our vision. Uh, Saudi Arabia would say we're going to have to have uh, liquid fuels and oil is going to be a part of it, but the emissions from uh, burning those, we're going to deep six deep underground and store it as carbon capture and storage. Mm -hmm. Most countries in Africa and others say that's going to take too long. takes too long to cite those, as we've seen here in Iowa. It takes too long. With eminent domain? Boy, does it ever. Yeah, it's going to take too long, and we're not going to meet the goals that are needed in the near term, 2030, to decrease emissions and assure that we don't warm up more than 1.5 degrees Celsius. I want you to expand on this idea of carbon capture because it's, as you mentioned, very present in our uh, discussion here in the Midwest, uh, several Midwestern states uh, with proposed uh, carbon pipelines, and that carbon coming chiefly perhaps exclusively from ethanol plants currently. And so this is liquefied, piped to uh, some geologically safe area, piped deep underground where it, it, it is kept, and that prevents it from going into the atmosphere and causing more uh, of the effects of greenhouse gas, if, if I'm understanding that right. That's right. That's carbon capture and storage to make a environmentally uh, friendly, a uh, zero carbon fuel mm-hmm. or or near zero. Is ethanol, as we produce it today in Iowa, um, green energy? Can it be classified as green energy, or does it have to advance to other crops in order to become have a have a zero carbon footprint or less of a carbon footprint? 
Ethanol today, according to EPA, is better than using petrol gasoline in our vehicles. And on a life cycle basis, it's better by more than 20%. Even when we include the fossil fuels we need for the inputs, the tractors that have to run Yes, on. even when we include that. However, I must say that's controversial in other other academics and other people they disagree will, with their okay. assessment. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's – EPA would say, yes, it's a green fuel right now, uh, but it could be greener. And the way it could be greener is to capture those emissions, carbon capture and storage, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, What's your assessment? I think John Kerry in another speech said, this is, this is our last chance. What is the reference there? Last chance. What is your assessment of the progress that has been made transitioning to green energy? We know we are already suffering the effects of climate change in terms of extreme weather, drought, flood, whatever it is. Um, uh, where are we what can we still prevent if action, a quicker action is taken? Well, you know, Ben, that's exactly it. A lot of good things are happening. Uh, look at wind in Iowa, wind and solar uh, across the nation. But even in the world, it's still uh, these good things that are happening uh, are employing people and creating wealth and prosperity, but they're only making up 20% of all the energy in the world that's being used. Almost 75 or 80% is still being done by fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas. So what John Kerry is saying, that if we keep using those, even with the plans to uh, have carbon capture and storage, we will not be able to meet our 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, goal and probably not even meet the 2 degrees Celsius goal of the Paris Agreement. And that means many more wildfires, much more sea level rise, many more uh, uh, hurricanes and uh, tornadoes and flooding and drought. And we can't afford that according to John Kerry. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about a fund for loss and damage for the most vulnerable countries. As this um, is developing here, we see some of the countries that have are least responsible uh, for greenhouse gases are, are suffering the most, aren't they? Oh, for sure. The countries like island nations, uh, much of sub-Saharan Africa, they've done the least emitted the lowest amount of emissions through time, and they're suffering the most. In fact, people are already having to migrate off of islands and things like that. And the good news, there is some good news from this COP28, and that is there's now a loss and damage fund. I would link it to like FEMA in our country. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an insurance fund for those people who already have loss and damage from climate change, and it's especially those vulnerable countries, they can apply to this fund and begin to get money to make repairs right then, much as we do with FEMA. Mm -hmm. We have about a minute before we take a break, Jerry, but please address this. So many oil representatives, thousands of oil representatives uh, at this um, summit uh, how are they shaping this summit? Of course, they have an incredible interest in in keeping uh, the world's population burning fossil fuels, burning oil. They have a greater representation than at any summit before this. I've been to mo- many of those, most of those. Uh, now there's 20,000 oil representatives. ExxonMobil is at the, this at this summit. At this summit. 
ExxonMobil is there for the very first time, and it's chaired by Dubai, United Arab Emirates, and the sultan there, who is president and CEO of an oil company. So many people, Al Gore especially, have protested that this is just too much influence into a very important process. Mm -hmm. As we near the last day of it, we'll see if it's extended. Are they shaping it in, in a way that's unfavorable to stemming climate change that you can see? I think the text agreement that left out any mention of phasing down fossil fuel would indicate that they are having uh, some influence on the negotiations compared to earlier times. Researcher and environmental engineer at the University of Iowa, Jerry Schnoor is with us live. We'll be back in just a moment. When we come back, we'll listen to a conversation I had with a science journalist originally from Bluegrass, Iowa, who uh, attended this conference. Uh, I spoke with him last week, Christian Elliott, uh, and he'll talk about how the media, uh, their angle in this. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion including Above and Beyond Cancer. It's River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. This hour, we're discussing the ongoing COP28 climate summit in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. These annual conferences serve as a formal meeting to negotiate and agree to action on how to tackle climate change and halt global warming. Nearly 200 countries represented at this year's COP28 Today, we're talking with the University of Iowa environmental engineer, Jerry Schnoor. He's our climate specialist for the hour. Also with Iowans attending the conference for their perspectives. Last week, I had a chance to talk with a 25-year-old native of Bluegrass, Iowa. He's attending the climate summit in Dubai. Christian Elliott, welcome to the program. You're joining us via Zoom from Dubai. I am. Uh, thank you for having me, Ben. A little bit on your background. You're a graduate of Augustana College in Rock Island. Uh, you have a master's in science journalism from Northwestern University's Medill School. You are a recipient of the Pulitzer Center's 2022 Climate Science Reporting Fellowship and currently work uh, as a fellow for NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and work as a freelance climate science journalist. Quite a resume for a 25-year-old Christian Tell us a little bit more about your background, your interests, and how you ended up attending this climate conference. Yeah, um, I have been very lucky the last couple of years. Um, my undergraduate background is in anthropology and environmental science, but I kind of discovered late that what I really wanted to do was be a journalist. So, um, yeah, I got, got my master's from Northwestern and the, got connected with the Pulitzer Center there. They're a nonprofit based in D.C., but they partner with schools across the country and fund students' reporting projects. So I um, got a grant from them uh, last year, became a climate science reporting fellow. And yeah, this year they, they emailed me and asked if I wanted to go to COP28. And I said, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And who would so, say yeah, no to that, right? Yeah. 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 
So I understand the Pulitzer Center has a major presence at COP28, um, showcasing a new framework of journalism and engagement, in the words that I'm reading about it, uh, six uh, distinct events encompassing five themed pavilions. So you've just arrived there. You're more or less, I think, 12, 13 hours ahead of us in time as we're record. I'm recording this in the morning. It's it's in the evening time there in Dubai for you. Uh, what have you experienced so far? Have you presented as well? Uh, I had a presentation, or I did a presentation earlier today with uh, this year's Climate Science Reporting Fellow. So it was me and her and a uh, staff member from the Pulitzer Center, and we did a, a presentation in the Children and Youth Pavilion here all about um, how to tell um, climate science stories. Um, so it was mm-hmm. a, for an audience of young people, um, how to get their stories from their local communities out there. Yeah, well, I assume this is also not only for young, but for middle-aged and older people. What is the key here to connecting with those, uh, with, with people uh, to help us understand what, what's going on with our climate? What, what is the key for a journalist? Well, for me as a science journalist, I think the, the thing I try to do is, um, you know, tell the stories of scientists doing the hard work of understanding our changing climate, um, making the data relatable to people through the stories of those scientists and, you know, showing that they are human beings with a lot of emotion and feeling, especially in this moment after a year of, you know, really bad disasters um, and, and trying to make um, make the climate change issue and science behind it uh, relatable to, to people reading these stories. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's a big event. Can you describe what it looks like, uh, the, the physical space that you're in there at COP28? Yeah, it's, it's overwhelming. I'm talking to you from an uh, interview room in the Media Center, which is this massive temporary building they set up with uh, journalists from all over the world here. Um, but the, the COP Expo City here in Dubai is absolutely massive. Um, I've put in a lot of steps walking around to all the different pavilion buildings. And, you know, there's these giant domes and all kinds of crazy architecture. Um, yeah, I, I <laughs> it's pretty overwhelming. And knowing that there's, you know, 50 to 70,000 people here too, all giving presentations and doing high-level negotiations and a lot going on. Mm -hmm. What are you most looking forward to? Um, There's an ocean pavilion. I'm really interested in learning more about how our oceans are changing and connecting with scientists, and there's some more Pulitzer Center events there. And I know that uh, NASA also has a presence here, so I'm hoping to connect with some colleagues Young people who are really distraught, um, we've heard the term doom scrolling <laughs> on the internet, uh, just don't see much of a, a future with uh, climate change happening so rapidly. What do you have to say as someone who is at the center of these negotiations and, and decisions towards actions? I'm sure you get into to, to a state of mind where, where you're disappointed as well in the action. Yeah, I, I definitely do. I mean, and there's young people here at, I mean, today was youth day at cop 28 and there's young people here that are protesting and are you know just upset with how slow i mean this is the 28th cop and how slow action is when all these nations are trying to come to a consensus and then individual nations have to 
you know, hold up their ends of the bargain that they agree to. Um, and yeah, it's very easy to feel like it's hopeless. But um, I mean, I think as a, as a journalist, solution, solutions journalism stands out to me. Um, there's just so many people all over the world that are really making a difference and trying to change things. And there are solutions and there are ways to limit warming um, to 1.5 degrees. And yeah, I, I, it always makes me feel better when I read those stories or talk to people that are, are doing things that matter. Yeah. Christian, give us an example of, of what you mean in, in concrete terms. We're talking about a new framework for journalism and engagement concerning climate change. What would be uh, an approach to a story that would be in this new framework compared to what might have been in a more traditional reporting of it? Yeah. Um, well, I, I mean, maybe I, my story came out last year. I could give the example of um, Muriel, my colleague here, who just finished reporting on uh, peatlands in Patagonia, where she's from in Chile. And there's uh, basically industry is overexploiting the moss that grows on the peatlands, um, but also they, they need it to sell it to survive. So it's a complicated issue. And the Pulitzer Center for this story and other stories works really hard to help us journalists identify the audiences that really need to get those stories and make sure they can access them and really, really targets those stories to the people that need to see them and also helps, um, you know, spark action. So I know Muriel, you know, sent her story to the Ministry of Environment in Chile and um, there's, you know, concrete things coming up like bills that could pass or could not pass that affect the issue. So uh, I think the, you know, we usually write stories and we put them out there and we hope for the best. And yeah, I do think it's good that the Pulitzer Center is being really intentional about what the impact of those stories are and making sure the right people um, see those stories that can make a difference. Christian, uh, you're a native of the Midwest, a native of Bluegrass, Iowa. How does you know, your work and what you're experiencing there in Dubai um, pertain particular, in particular to the Midwest and the telling of stories here? Yeah, climate change is a global issue, um, and it affects places all over the world differently. Um, so growing up in Iowa and uh, up till now, I've seen uh, the place that I call home change. You know, the seasons cha- are changing there's effects to agriculture. Um, and I think that the negotiations here at COP that feel very far away um, from Iowa have a real have a real impact back home. Um, so it's important to keep up with these international negotiations. Well, thank you for joining us, uh, Christian Elliott. Uh, uh, despite the jet lag you have, having just arrived uh, in Dubai, United Arab Emirates, uh, Christian Elliott a native of Bluegrass, Iowa, a Pulitzer Center fellow. And, uh, uh, well, enjoy the rest of your time there. Soak it all up and uh, become an agent of change there as a climate science journalist. We appreciate talking with you, Christian. Take care. Thank you very much for having me, and I'll do my best. 
That uh, conversation I had with Christian Elliott uh, from last uh, Friday, he'd just arrived in Dubai. Uh, A correction, I said Dubai was something like 12 or 13 hours ahead of us. It's actually only 10 hours ahead of us. But if you've ever experienced jet lag of 10 hours, that's significant. So thanks again to Christian uh, (laughs) for working with us. Uh, What a delightful young uh, man there, an agent of change. Back live now with Jerry Schnur, University of Iowa researcher and environmental engineer. Jerry, before before we move on, I wanted to ask, I know you're listening You're uh, listening to Christian's uh, words there. What is your reaction? We've got someone here in the media, a Pulitzer Center fellow, uh, really engaged. And of course, uh, it will affect young people more than old people, this climate change, <laughs> because they will, their lifespans will go on far beyond ours. I liked the, uh, what he said about uh, doom scrolling and uh, the disappointed youth because Clearly, he does not come across like that. And in particular, I uh, took from uh, what Christian said is that he's interested in solutions journalism. Mm -hmm. And this is really a new thing to try to look at it uh, not as the glass half uh, empty, but rather half full. And what are the solutions? And can we actually uh, curb this climate change that we're experiencing? And uh, hopefully with more people like him, uh, our future will look brighter. Make a distinguish uh, distinguish between uh, future or solutions journalism and some might say, well, you're just being Pollyanna about that. You're seeing it through rose-colored glasses because uh, you don't want to be a doomsayer. What is the distinction between reporting on solutions and doomsaying? Maybe doom scrolling and Pollyanna are two opposites of the, <laughs> of the uh, continuum. And uh, also... Uh, People have taken this exception. I'm not a journalist, but with the notion of balanced journalism where you get uh, one person on one side of the issue and then counter it with a person on the other side of the issue, that's not always correct either because, you know what, one of them might be right. Yes. And so (laughs) that's where we need uh, solutions journalism. Uh, What can we do to really make it right? Right. And we're coming out of an era, for most people anyway, of climate science denial. Of course, there's a good portion of people who are still denying uh, that human action is causing it or that it will be all that bad. Science, the overwhelming consensus uh, from scientists who study this is uh, this is the real deal. Uh, this is happening, and we better do something to avoid avoid catastrophe on many fronts. For sure. Yeah. Um, I, you have to go off and teach a, a class here in a few minutes, Jerry, but we want to dovetail this conversation into a conversation we'll have in just a moment with the mayor of Dubuque and his uh, director of sustainability for the city of Dubuque. But before we, we talk with them and invite them into our talk show room, so to speak, uh, talk about how municipalities have played a role. Uh, because the last administration, the Trump administration, not known for tackling climate change, in fact, quite the opposite, uh, and not at all in the way the current Biden administration has done it. So cities there really entered to take up the slack. Am I understanding that correctly? I think that's right. Um, You know, it maybe goes back even to Bloomberg in New York City when he was mayor. But the movement on the part of mayors, and I've been to several of these 
uh, COP meetings. And even Iowa is well represented, Frank County in Des Moines and uh, the Dubuque mayor uh, before uh, Brad Kavanaugh as well. I worked with him. And uh, they're a powerful force. Interestingly, all of the actions that the mayors and the cities are taking to reduce our greenhouse gas uh, emissions profile are not really counted necessarily in what the states report, what the nations report, but they're doing stuff and they're doing it right now. Uh, they're not, it's like solutions. They're working on solutions that make sense for those cities and more power to them. That's a, that's a force that uh, is to be reckoned with, and they're making a difference, I think. Okay, and with, with those uh, uh, words, a nice introduction to uh, say hello to the mayor of Dubuque, Brad Kavanaugh. Welcome to our program. Well, thank you very much for having me. Also, Gina Bell is with us, Director of Sustainability with the City of Dubuque. Gina Bell, welcome to you. Thank you so much. Uh, Mayor Kavanaugh, uh, let me ask you uh, about your participation in COP28. You're, you're back now. You returned to Iowa? Yes. Yep. Back home. Um, I was there in Dubai from the 30th of November through the 4th mm-hmm. when I came back home of December. You went with three other mayors as a delegation of the Mississippi River's Cities and Towns Initiative, I understand. Tell us a little bit about that initiative. Yeah, so I, yeah, I was kind of there in combination with uh, MRCTI, we call it, and also um, the Bloomberg Philanthropies, who was just mentioned, invited a lot of mayors from around the world to go. Uh, MRCTI is a group of mayors um, representing cities up and down the entire Mississippi River. So we have um, you know, a block that is able to go together to places like Washington, D.C., at times places like Dubai, be able to speak to the issues that affect all of us because we are on the river, and uh, many of those issues are climate-related. Mm-hmm. Um, Mayor Kavanaugh and Gina Bell, I wanted to, we'll, we'll have the rest of the hour to, to, to talk more specifically about what you've been doing in the city of Dubuque, but we have a minute or so left with Jerry Schnoor here before he runs off to uh, teach a class at the University of Iowa. Jerry, your parting words as we consider where we are, what is the juncture we face right now? Um, uh, John Kerry said this is the last chance, and, and you described that. Uh, give us some um, solutions, <laughs> journalism, uh, uh, so that we can have a positive attitude. And as individuals, what can we do to affect change and uh, help prevent the worst sort of catastrophe facing our planet? Certainly, as individuals, we can uh, do a number of things to reduce our own carbon footprints. And it starts really with us as individuals. But also I think that we can vote. We can vote in people who understand that this is a serious issue, a serious problem that's going to affect our children and our children's children's children, and that uh, we are in uh, a tough situation right now in order to try to prevent future climate change that uh, is much, much worse even than what we have experienced so far. Tough but not insurmountable if enough awareness is raised? We have to both fa- uh, phase down, let's say, fossil fuels and phase in more rapidly renewable energy, even fusion, uh, in order to have low carbon uh, energy in the future. And we were talking about the media. We have to be fact-based, science-based in our assessment 
as we go forward on this. Jerry Schnoor. Solutions-based. Solutions-based. Thank you so much. We'll let you go off to class. Jerry Schnoor, University of Iowa Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Ben. Back in just a moment with more from the mayor of Dubuque. It's River to River. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer today talking about COP28. Uh, That is the latest uh, annual summit, climate summit, uh, sponsored by the UN. Some nearly 200 nations taking part in it, tens of thousands taking part of it. And we've been speaking with Iowans who've been there along with Jerry Schnoor. We said goodbye to him, environmental uh, engineer and researcher at the University of Iowa who's uh, really tuned in uh, to our path here in trying to avert the worst consequences of climate change, preventing greenhouse gases, more of them, uh, from escaping into the atmosphere and, and causing this um, potential you know, catastrophic uh, extreme weather, flooding, a drought, uh, you name it. We've been reporting on it here uh, over the last few years. We spend the last uh, portion of our program with the uh, Mayor of Dubuque, Brad Cavanaugh, is with us, along with uh, Gina Bell, Director of Sustainability with the uh, City of Dubuque. And you can join us with a question for them, one 780 9100 or email us, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Mayor Cavanaugh, uh, let's have you talk a little bit about uh, the role of mayors you saw at COP28. How unique is it that a, a mayor... Uh, would be there, and um, is it because of uh, a recognition of uh, uh, Dubuque's leading role here in tackling climate change? Yeah, you know that's a great point. You know, I think I think part of it is, and I I mean, first of all, both Gina and I were very honored to get this uh, invitation in the first place uh, to be able to represent Dubuque and Iowa and, and be a part of this international conversation, but. Um, it is a unique opportunity, and it's so unique. In fact, it's the first time it's ever been done. So uh, the local climate action summit was a first this year, and it was uh, invitations to at least I think 150 mayors from around the world uh, attended, and I think it was 30 or 31 who came from the United States, uh, Frank County in Des Moines, um, outgoing mayor there, and mm-hmm. I were the only two mayors um, in the state of Iowa who were represented there. So it was great to be able to to be there and be a part of this discussion and. You know, a lot of what you've been talking about on the show already is uh, a lot to do with the reason for this. Um, and I, I really uh, appreciated Jerry's comments here right before he left about how the solutions, you know, that we talk about, they really do occur on a local level. You know, we can talk about some of these big things and, and major corporations and what countries can do. Those things are extremely important. But on a day-to-day basis, the actions that we take locally are the ones that are going to make the greatest impact right where we live at home. So I think it was uh, I think it's a great uh, chance for mayors and, and local officials to be a part of this conversation. And I'm I'm hopeful that it will continue. I think it's a really important step in the right direction. Gina Bell, director of sustainability with the city of Dubuque. Um, uh, talk a little bit about your role for the city of Dubuque. Are you the well, point person for all things um, relating to tackling climate change to the degree you can as a municipality? Well, 
in the city of Dubuque, we've really tried to make it so that it is a citywide effort and that it is embedded in every department and the work that they're doing. Mm. But certainly I'm the point person on it and we have a small but mighty team that are working with other departments and our community to help reduce our greenhouse gas emissions as well as build resiliency throughout the city. Okay, so there are the ears of many IPR listeners in towns and cities all across Iowa. Well, tell us, what should other cities be doing if they aren't already? What are you doing specifically, Gina Bell, in the city of Dubuque? Well, that's a hard question because it's so broad of a mm. scope. There are many things that cities can do, including looking at their own buildings and energy efficiency within their buildings, their fleets that they're using specifically to municipalities. But school districts can be looking at their buildings and their fleets. Um, community members can look at individual actions that they take. And as uh, Jerry mentioned, voting is really important. I think it's important to remember that we are so interconnected, not only with other Iowans and our community, but globally. And that's one of my takeaways from COP28 was mm. what we do here in Iowa does impact the rest of the world. And so we do have to make these changes. And some of them are for the better and they save us money. And, um, you know, everyone would like to see an increase in biodiversity throughout the state of Iowa. And that's something that we can actively work on. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Kavanaugh, uh, what were the main themes that emerged for you having just returned from Dubai, COP28? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Ben. You know, um, Christian Elliott, who you had on your show before, talked about the fact that it was an overwhelming experience to be there. And I have to agree, you know, when you're, when you're there and you feel the weight of the entire world there with you um, and in a space where you definitely are, you know, you're moving around a lot, you got the jet lag kicking in. Um, it still, you know, is kind of swimming through my head and thinking about how we can actually take real action here in Dubuque. But there are a couple of things that I think are, are really important that, that I walked away with. And Jean and I had a good chance to discuss this a little bit before I left and she stuck around for a few more days in Dubai. The first is, um, you know, if, we, if we're going to be serious about this and, you know, we're talking about some, some major goals by the year 2050 around the world and then, you know, every city sets their own goals. If we're going to be serious, then, then we really do need to be bold. The steps we take need to be bold ones. And we have to come to an agreement on that as cities across the state of Iowa and as a state as well. You know, we have some real opportunities in front of us right now in the United States because of some really key pieces of legislation that have been passed in the last few years. We've got the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. And these opportunities, the funding opportunities that come from those really call for bold action. I mean, it's the, it's the projects that stick out that are going to be the ones that really call attention and get the real funding for things. And at the same time, you know, we need to continue to push ourselves to be as innovative as we possibly can. I think there was a bit of a, a time where we, uh, you know, we all kind of fell into a pattern um, and it was reducing greenhouse gas emissions and we took some big swipes at things. So it was, you know, fossil fuels and um, you know, the emissions from, from big emitters. Well, now we need to start thinking a little more granular. Uh, you know, Gina mentioned fleets. One of the things we talk a lot about here in Dubuque is the fact that we have a large fleet of cars and trucks. What can we do to reduce those emissions from those major emitters that we have uh, as a city? And I think that if every city thinks about it this way in their own backyard, I really do think that we're going to be able to take some, some major steps forward, but it has to come with bold, innovative moves. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Gina Bell, um, talk a little bit about more about what you see in your position as director of sustainability with the city of Dubuque as the low-hanging fruit, or are we past the stage of low-hanging fruit? And as Mayor Kavanaugh just referred to, it has to be more granular now. I do think it needs to be granular, and I think we also uh, have to focus on the human aspect of it. Mm. We do this because we want to reduce emissions, but that doesn't mean anything to most people. And so we have to look at what challenges are our residents facing on a daily basis, and how can we link that to climate action. So one easy win is looking at energy efficiency in homes and how people use heating and cooling systems and how can we improve on those systems and make them uh, less emissions, um, emit fewer emissions and and then also help them save money and energy at the same time and maybe ease some financial burden or energy burden. So that's how I approach my work is really a human-centered approach and making sure that People have equitable access to our programs and to the solutions that do exist. Gina Bell, how are these federal monies, which uh, Mayor Kavanaugh referred to, helping in the city of uh, Dubuque, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the infrastructure uh, law that was passed? We're always looking at opportunities. We've got several in the works. We were awarded uh, $1.5 million to improve our tree canopy, which will help keep buildings cooler and also provide a carbon sink. Uh, We're really excited about that's a big one that we just got. We're also looking at funding to help electrify our fleet and funding to decarb our buildings. So there are lots of opportunities. Uh, We're working on how they look within our city plans that already exist and then also considering what big, ambitious actions can we take and what financing is available for it. Mm-hmm. You want to comment on those federal monies a little bit more, Mayor Kavanaugh? Yeah. You know, another thing I think in addition to what Gina is, has already mentioned is um, thinking about how, how people move. You know, one of the more granular issues that is a very important one is, when it comes to actual climate action within cities is, is thinking about how people move around and how it can be done in a way that isn't built entirely around cars. One of the challenges we have from the, the last 50, 60 years is the fact that cities were just simply built around the automobile. And that really encourages driving more than moving in any other way. Now, in cities like Dubuque, we always have challenges. We get a lot of hills. You know, we're, we're a little bit uh, disconnected in some ways. But um, how we get people from point A to point B and how we can do that in a way that doesn't necessarily have to involve automobiles can really put everybody in a place where they can take individual action to be able to work on things. So a couple of things that, that have happened recently, um, we, we actually received a raised planning grant from the Department of Transportation. And that grant is uh, to build an overpass that will connect a part of the city that's disconnected, but also involve um, the building some complete streets that are really built more around pedestrians and how pedestrians get around rather than cars. That's a great example of one of the ways that we're trying to think forward in how we can redesign our city in some ways and still get people places they need to go fast, but do it in a way that is going to be much, uh, much healthier and much better for the climate in general. So those are some other ways that we're doing it that, you know, raise the, the raise grants, a big one. We're going to be going for that implementation grant here this next year. And then um, you may be familiar with our B Branch watershed um, flood mitigation project that's been ongoing for almost a decade now. And that really, you know, continues and we've gotten some funds to help with that. And that's really to help with being more resilient, helping 
with flooding issues that happen behind our flood wall, um, help with storm water and all those things that can really cause challenges for people when we have major weather events. Yeah, right. Um, back to the mobility issue, Mayor Kavanaugh. Uh, how are your bike paths developing in, May, in in Dubuque? You, of course, Dubuque, a very hilly place, but San Francisco, as hilly as it gets, and and I know they have a tremendous bike system. And I actually have a friend who's a a, a biker who. Um, lived in San Francisco for many uh, years, and you've never met a biker with uh, stronger thighs than that guy. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm he sure said he o- he owes it to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> well, he sounds like he'd be a good Dubuque in that case. You know, it's a it's a great question, I, and and it, I'm going to be completely honest here and, and forthright in in saying what I've said publicly uh, fairly recently. I, I think Dubuque's a little bit behind when it becomes when it comes to the. Um, more of a biking culture and being able to get around using uh, using bike paths, but then also um, right of ways within streets and making sure that streets are built around biking and mobility in that way too. And since that is the case, um, you know, I really, that's one of those things that as mayor, I'm, I'm going to be pushing for in the next few years. It's, it's one of those issues that we've talked about pretty frequently. We've got a very active group of uh, community members who are starting to take uh, a role of their own in identifying the best bike paths through town, helping the city identify places mm-hmm. where we can put more on-street uh, bike lanes and things like that. So we have movement, and we're and we're going in the right direction. But we've got some we've got some ground to make up if we want to catch up to some other great cities like Des Moines and um, Iowa City and Cedar Rapids and places like that throughout throughout Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gina Bell, do you have anything to add to the the theme of transportation here? I agree with what the mayor said, and I think Iowans can relate to if you build it, they will come. We believe that about bike lanes in Dubuque, and we do want to see us increase our, our or make our streets more amenable to just cars. Mm-hmm. We want them, we want people to feel comfortable riding, walking, scooting along All right. them. All right. Mayor Kavanaugh, we have an email from a listener wanting to be, to be more specific, asking exactly uh, what is Dubuque doing to fight climate change? Yeah, well, that, that's, that's, a, that's a great question and a fair one, too. You know, I would, first of all, I would encourage people to go to our um, City of Dubuque website. We have, you know, our whole sustainability department there has uh, many different programs that we're working on to be able to do this. Um, the, there, and there's some, some good projects listed, and I might have Gina jump in and, and say a few of these, too, but um, you know, we do have a climate action plan, and our, our plan is uh, to have a 50% reduction by 2030. And this is one of those areas where, you know, um, I, I wonder at times if this is bold enough for where we sit now. But I do think that there are some some things that within that plan that, that show some specifics. We, we're taking very, very real steps. I mean, one of the things that we're doing is, is thinking a lot about, going back to this transportation piece, we're, going, we're thinking a lot about electrification. We're trying to be on the forefront of, of that movement in, in a way that's going to work for our city. So we have very actively been exploring how we can electrify our fleet, because I mentioned that earlier, that the, our fleet is one of the major emitters. We're doing our best to begin building out an infrastructure here in Dubuque. One of the challenges we have with that is that we aren't necessarily connected to the rest of Iowa when it comes to the um, electrification of roadways. Uh, Since we don't have an interstate running through Dubuque, we have been left off the first version of Iowa's map to electrify the main corridors. But despite that, we are trying to do our best to to electrify, to build a 
infrastructure so that electric vehicles can more easily be utilized throughout the city and have charging stations and things like that. We are um, actively looking for ways to electrify our fleet with cars first and moving towards trucks after that. So we're chasing funding for that and um, trying to set funding aside and, and budget for those things. Um, so we're, we're taking some of these active steps. And I might have Gina jump in and talk about some of we, the other we, programs that work directly with residents. If that works well, Gina, you. we have just less than a minute. Go, go ahead, Gina, please, quickly. I'll just list one big thing, uh, which was our... Uh, methane capture at our landfill was a huge win for reducing yep. emissions. Right. Okay. Mayor Kavanaugh, uh, send us off with, uh, tell us how individuals can act here because um, let's say you're in a city or a town in Iowa and you don't think your city's doing enough in this. How do you best apply official uh, uh, pressure, if I can put it that way, to elected sure. officials such as yourself to get action at a municipal level? So this is the thing that I think is the most important about the municipal piece of this versus the world stage. We are the most accessible politicians, if you will, um, you know, lawmakers that you will ever find. We, we shop in the same grocery stores. We, we go to the same places. You find us at lots of events. And in the city of Dubuque, for example, we have two meetings at least every single month where the public is invited to provide any sort of input they want. We welcome any and all input and um, any and all ideas on how we can improve and ways that we can be better. And what I would say to people is simply reach out. And if you don't get a response the first time, reach out again and reach out to even more city council members. Okay, go to your city council meetings. Of course, there's always a mechanism for you to stand up and have your two or three minutes, whatever it is, according to the uh, city council there. Uh, we want to uh, thank uh, Mayor Brad Cavanaugh, Mayor of Dubuque, Gina Bell, Director of Sustainability with the City of Dubuque. Uh, they just returned from the COP28, the climate summit being held in Dubai. Thank you for sharing your views, Mayor Cavanaugh and Gina Bell. Thanks for having us. Today's River to River, produced by Danny Gear and Samantha McIntosh, with production assistance from Maddie Willis. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.